Elrod, I think we are in peak swamp temperature here right now. It feels like a swamp. It is a swamp. It's so hot outside. Even my dog walking around the block this afternoon was not having it. My dogs go out for two minutes and they're like, no, let me back. Yeah, we're done. We're We're done. done. They go to the bathroom quickly and then they want to go back inside. Yeah. Peak swamp. And uh, we've got our friend and NBC News political director, Mark Murray, here with us today. Mark, welcome to the Electables. Thank, Thank you, you guys. for braving the swamp weather to come here. It was easy to hop into a cab and come out. I didn't have to spend too much time out <laughs> Lots in, the, of AC. in the sun. Yes. Lots of AC. You're lucky we didn't d- decide to do this outside. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have agreed. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to call in. Right. Thank, thanks so much right. for the invite. I'm going to call in. Um, so, Mark, uh, you guys just came out with uh, a new poll today. Um, lots of interesting stuff in there. What stands out to you? Um, we read, I read the, uh, you know, the, the, the piece on it in uh, first read this morning, but what are, what are some nuggets in there that people should be looking at? I think there are three storylines. And the first will start with President Trump and his standing in the poll. And his job rating is at 43%, pretty much where it's been in other polls. But we also asked about his economic handling. And it has him at 49%, which is higher than that base 43%. And it does show that he's actually getting better credit on the economy than other things. Then we asked, what was his handling of El Paso and the Dayton aftermath of those shootings? And his approval rating there was at 36%. Mm. And, you know, so you kind of get to see all the different sides of the president on, you know, right in the middle, overall job rating, economy where he's just a little bit stronger, certainly responding to tragedies, uh, much worse. And then we look back in our poll in the NBC Wall Street Journal polls going back to the 1990s about how other presidents have responded to tragedies and shootings. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at someone like Bill Clinton. Instead of the 36% that Donald Trump got for the aftermath of Dayton and El Paso, you had Bill Clinton at around in the 80s for how he responded to the Oklahoma City bombing. Right. George W. Bush, 9-11, close to 90%. Barack Obama after the shootings in Tucson, Arizona, uh, close to 80%. Mm-hmm. And you look at not only, you know, you compare that to Donald Trump in El Paso and Dayton, then all the other things that happened in the Trump presidency too, and whether it's Charlottesville, it's 20% in our poll. You end up looking at uh, the uh, Pittsburgh synagogues, uh, mm-hmm. about 35%. And wow. so one of the jobs as president of the United States is to be the consoler in chief. And Time and time again, the president is getting very low remark, low marks from the American public, not only from the right the immediacy of these events, but certainly in the aftermath and how the president reacts. Well, I think this is what's so fascinating about the way you guys poll at NBC News and MSNBC, because you do have all this context from previous polls that go way back. Can you share with our listeners, Mark, a little bit about the methodology? Like, do you use the same firm? Do you use the same sample size? Like, how can you definitively compare the numbers that we're seeing now that Trump's handling on some of these crises issues with, as you mentioned, Bill Clinton and Oklahoma City and Barack Obama and Tucson and various other like do you is it the same polling firm? Is it the same methodology? Great great question. Yes. Yeah, so the the poll goes back to nineteen ninety one, which as you mentioned gives us a bevy of just like information Incredible. to be able to have. It uh, was the brainchild of Tim Russert. Mm-hmm. Decided to have a poll. He went to his friends at the Wall Street Journal and said, let's, let's team up. The poll's been around since 1991. It's co-conducted by the Democratic polling group Hart Research Associates, mm-hmm. Peter Hart, longtime Democratic pollster and strategist. Right. The Republican side is public opinion strategy, some of the best Republican pollsters in the business. They work with us. We craft all the polling, the methodology. 
it's a live caller poll. That is, it's not robo, it's not online. So they're actually people from a calling center calling. More than 50% are conducted by cell phone because most people end up having their sure. cell phone. So it the it is con- it is considered a, one of these gold standard mm-hmm. polls. It costs a lot of money from yep. us, uh, as <laughs> yep. you guys know. You end up getting what you pay for in politics, yeah. and uh, we 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 pay a price, as does every great campaign and committee group, when you actually do a really good poll. And uh, the poll was in the field today. It we're recording this on Monday the nineteenth. The poll was in the field uh, August tenth of the fourteenth. Okay, and so it just occurred right before the wall, the uh, drop on the market. That's right. right. Yeah. So the that drop on the market where the Dow went down 800 points, that was on Wednesday. That was the final day of our polls. Okay. So wow. incorporate a bit of it. A little bit of it. I think the, the best way to kind of look at the, even particularly the economic grades is like, you know, this is really represents the, the course of the Trump's presidency, not necessarily what was actually happening during that time period. Right, right. A number of polls have come out um, in the last couple weeks that show that his reelect standing is very fragile. Um, your approval, his approval number, it dropped, a, you know, probably within the margin of error in terms of your last poll. But um, there does seem to be when you look at uh, there when you look at sort of the number of people who say they will definitely vote for Trump versus the number of people who definitely vote for a Democrat. There is a huge gap there. And then there's also when you're actually pitting him against another Democrat, which uh, one of your competitors did last week, he doesn't even get over 40 percent against some some of these folks. So what should the I mean, if you're in the Trump campaign, this should be red alert time, right? I, I think it's definitely the danger zone. What I would kind of refer to is he's incredibly vulnerable. It doesn't mean he's out and, and time is going to be a benefit for him because even in our poll, which you end up having a generic at some point, the Democratic nominee will no longer be a generic sure. Democrat. Right. And so our poll found that 40% of voters say that they would definitely or probably vote for President Trump. 52% said that they would end up probably or definitely voting for the Democratic nominee. It's a 12-point gap. Yep. It's you're, the, you're the incumbent president. You don't want to be seeing numbers like that. The one good thing that the president probably can find in that poll, despite all of those vulnerable red-flashing numbers, is – that we're starting to see that Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders' uh, popularity have gone down, mm-hmm. particularly since they've entered the fray as presidential candidates. We look back at both Biden and Bernie and Warren in 2017 or 2018. Last time we looked at just their broad gauge, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of them? They've all become much more unpopular. And that normally ends up happening. I mean, they, come, they come back down to earth. Like when Hillary Clinton you right. know, was Secretary of State, her approval ratings were out the roof. And then the moment she announced um, that she was running for president again in 2015 – her numbers went down, and then they kind of leveled out at like a you know a, a, a normal level or a, like a realistic level because right. it was impossible for her to have like an eighty two percent or whatever it was approval rating. Um, so, Mark, I want to ask you a little bit about the um, the gun control questions that you guys put in the poll. I was maybe I'm being naive, but I was absolutely shocked in a good way that eighty nine percent of Americans, Democrats and Republicans, eighty nine percent of those that you polled support background checks. Mm -hmm. These are, I'm sure some of the people you polled are NRA members. I'm sure some of the people you polled um, are, you know, gun owners and and, and believe in it's obviously their right to own a gun. But I was shocked by that number. Can you talk about how that, have you polled that in the past? Does that compare to anything? How does that jive with what you've polled in the past? So I'm going to take a little step back and I believe that it's kind of a glass half full and glass half empty looks at our poll. And you're referring to the glass half full side that you look mm-hmm. at individual measures. 
expanding background checks, uh, eliminating assault rifles and semi-automatic guns, having red flag laws, all those things end up having super majority support, not only from Democrats, but independents and even some Republicans and even some gun owners. That is the, I think if you are somebody who wants those things, that is some good news for you in the poll. The bad news in the glass half empty is that we asked another question outside of like those individual measures, just on the simple question, do you think the government is going too far in restricting gun rights? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that the government isn't going far enough in being able to limit gun access? And and, and what we ended up finding was almost kind of a jump ball where it was 50% of the country said, hey, the government isn't doing enough to stop gun purchases and, and have basically gun control policies. 45% 45% said, no, we actually think the government might be going a little too far here. It starts setting up as a classic Republican versus mm-hmm. Democratic fight. Mm-hmm. And as our the Republican half of our polling team found out, it's like this is, to them, one of the reasons why it's going to be hard to get structural change on gun control. Because yeah. while on those individual that you can all say, hey, we want more background checks, but all of a sudden it becomes a cultural issue mm-hmm. and a broader fight – that's when everyone gets into their corners. And mm-hmm. when people get in their corners, it's hard to actually end up instituting change. Yeah. You mentioned that we've seen a drop in the popularity of some of the Democrats running for office. Um, and I'm just curious if you had a chance to look at where that um, you know, loss of support or loss of popularity came from for um, – you mentioned Sanders, Biden, and I think Warren was the other one. I'll start with Joe Biden first. And, and you know, when we last looked, and this was almost an eternity ago, we've been asking other questions about Joe Biden. But the last time we said, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of him was back in August of 2018. Well, back in 2018, Joe Biden was the ex-vice president. Uh, he had someone who had a still a great story to tell. People who had kind of a halo view of the Obama presidency mm-hmm. probably had nice warm and fuzzies about Joe Biden. They're also, you know, I think that Joe Biden had a reservoir of goodwill, not only among Democrats, but Republicans and independents from all the tragedy in his family mm-hmm. and certainly the loss of his son, Bo Biden, how everyone kind of came to that. Right. And so those numbers that we saw were kind of like, as you mentioned, like Hillary Clinton in the heyday of her Secretary of State days, yeah. whereas like, Riding high. my God, this person's, you know, <laughs> the most popular figure in America. And, you know, but as soon as you dip your toes into those presidential waters, you start going down. And so to answer your question, Doug, we found was erosion, certainly from Republicans, because the moment is like, all right, this guy might be the Democratic nominee. I don't mm-hmm. think of him as Uncle Joe anymore. Right. He's the potential Democratic nominee. Yeah. Uh, independents start going down. They're not usually as engaged. But and this is this is important to realize, too, on these favorable popularity numbers, his numbers with Democrats went down, too. And the reasoning, my theory is that if you are a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren or you or Kamala uh, right. uh, Harris supporter, well, maybe you don't think as much about Joe Biden. We're in the fray of a presidential contest. And so right. bad news for you is your numbers go down. The good news, if you can actually become a nominee, and we saw this even with Mitt Romney. Remember, he had pretty lousy, favorable, unfavorable numbers in 2012. Right. As soon as you become the nominee, bring bring the party back together. And so some of those people who might have been Rick Santorum uh, or Newt Gingrich people come on your side. So we are right now, I think, in the like the 
brass knuckle phase of the Democratic race. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be some Democrats who aren't going to be all for Joe Biden because he is seen as a threat to the other other candidates who are out there. Right. And I think you made an important point, Mark, which is just because you have your your approval and disapproval ratings are not necessarily the same as your, you know, am I going to vote for this person? Am I not going to mm-hmm. vote for this person? Like there are people who, um, you know, have won with low disapproval ratings. Um, and there are people who have said, you know, I may not approve of this and this and this, but this is better than the alternative. So I'm going to vote for this person. Or there are people who say, I approve of this person, but I'm still not going to vote for them. So it's an interesting it's an interesting marker. Let me ask you this. Did you get into any of the cross tabs? I mean, did you get into like, you know, is Joe Biden losing support among African-Americans? Like, did you get into any of that? So he is still doing very well with African-Americans. You know, mainly the look at was it kind of a party because that was the most interesting mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in, you know, I'm, I when we go next into our horse race and this poll, we kind of decided to take a 30,000 foot view of looking at issues that are out there, uh, looking at uh, President Trump, for example. Once we get back into September and after the summer is pretty much over, we're right. going to get back into the Democratic horse race, which then you're able to kind of segment a whole lot more and like who who's behind Joe Biden, what kind of groups are there. To me, he actually seems like, and you look at these numbers, he's somebody who still does very well with African-Americans, who does well with, uh, potentially with whites without a college degree. Mm -hmm. But more than anything else, the the takeaway that I had was just the erosion that he has now had from being a presidential candidate more than he was in 2018. Right. Some good numbers in there for Planned Parenthood, who have been under attack by this administration. They remain a very popular organization, uh, especially when you compare them to the NRA. That's right. And so for the second straight poll that we've had, the NRA has had a net negative favorable rating in our poll. And oftentimes, I think over the last three or four years, we've thrown Planned Parenthood and the NRA into our poll because it's important to have some institutions that are seen as like a Democratic or Republican institution that's out there. And three or four years ago, it was always Planned Parenthood and the NRA were pretty close to even on their the public's attitudes. But we've actually found in the last two years where the NRA has definitely gone down. And uh, I think that that actually seems to be consistent with even kind of the political juice that's out there for the organization. And, uh, you know, despite some of the executive problems that people had at Planned Parenthood, you look at who's the, you know, the popularity – and it was the most popular institution figure in our poll. Yeah. The, uh, sorry, real quick, Adrian, did, uh, because I, I, you mentioned the. Le- I'm looking at April 2017. It's an interesting number of the NRA because they had a, a 40. They had about a 45 approval versus uh, a favorable number versus a, a 31. Mm-hmm. So there has been a significant drop of um, of support for them. And what is the NRA at now in the poll? They are at. Uh, they are at 40 versus 41. So they, they went from a plus, you know, 12 or 13 to minus one. And Doug, it, you know, it's important to look at the context. Sure. Two years ago, it was the Parkland shootings where I do think even more mm-hmm. than the Newtown situation where the numbers on the NRA have been in the negative territory was ever since Parkland. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating. And I think a lot of that ha- must have to do with the fact that, you know, Newtown, you, I mean, you can't imagine really anything worse, right? Young, small children, 
Um, but I think with Parkland, this is the first time where kids were, were were old enough to go out there and have a voice and be their own advocate. And the media, you guys gave them a ton of attention, which was wonderful. And they were such huge advocates for um, for the movement. My dad flew up here from Arkansas. <laughs> My 73-year-old dad came up here and marched with the kids. You know, I mean, like the whole country really felt like they were coming together. And I think that that is where you saw, you know, a massive shift. And I don't, you know, not to deviate too far from the poll, I'm still skeptical that Congress is going to actually do something this time. You know, it does feel different. And I think one of the reasons why it does feel different is you have all these presidential candidates who have a lot of television airtime, um, who have a lot of just, you know, attention in general, who are making this a big issue. Um, and it's being amplified throughout the echo chamber as a result. But I don't know. I mean, do you have any, like, thoughts on whether you think Mitch McConnell is going to act when he comes back? Because I know Pelosi will act, but the question is, will Republicans do anything? To me, the person who would have the best chance of actually getting any kind of gun control measures, and even on a limited basis, would be the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. To be able to have the credibility with his own party to say, we need to do X, Y, or Z. We're going to get it done. Um, And... uh, all that I've actually seen over the past week or last two weeks have been mixed messages. Yeah, and I think he's 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 nervous. He doesn't want and, to and make his face mad, but and it's a reminder. It, it feels very similar to after Parkland, where you hear one thing: "Hey, I'm for I'm for background checks." And the next day, is like, "Well, I don't know. This seems like a mental health issue." And then back and forth, back and forth, and yeah. I, I do think that sometimes presidential leadership and rhetoric is overrated on the amount of ability that you can actually do to get change. However. Mm-hmm. If you have one message and you push pursue it, what you can do is change people in your own party. Mm-hmm. And I think the only way to get anything done on the gun issue is for the president to have a sustained, consistent message where he puts the weight of his presidency behind it. Unless you get that, I don't really see any prospects and hope for legislative change. And I know people have mixed opinions on this, but I actually feel like Trump is the one president or is the one Republican who could actually go to that hardcore base of his and somehow convince them or convince enough of them who would not deviate from supporting him. I mean, what are they going to support a Democrat? Like, he is the person who could go to them and say, I actually, you got to hear me out here. I know this is not maybe what you want, but this is what our country needs. I want to get real. I mean, I don't know what his messaging is, but I feel like Trump could do that because his base is so fiercely loyal to him. I mean, they are with him. Through it all. We'll see if they're with him through the likely recession. But it, To me, there's one difference between President Trump and all other presidents that I've covered since I've been a political reporter in the 1990s, and that is that most presidents, and this was true for George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, use your base because you know that even if you do something that they angers them, they're still going to be with you. Mm-hmm. They give you flexibility to make a deal, to actually go somewhere else. President Trump, conversely, is always playing to his base. And that doesn't give him any flexibility to say, hey, now I'm going to reach out to Democrats. I'm going to do something else. There was time and time again where Barack Obama upset his base. But you know what? At the end of the day, they voted for him when it became a choice election. Right. We, You would hear some blind quotes or people getting angry. But that's what a base is for. I mean, they, you know, they put pressure on the party and the president to say, hey, we want you to go in the direction, even though if the president says, I'm going to put you in a little bit of a different pressure because I want to get, be able to get this. But when the president is only playing to his base, that eliminates the possibility to make any kind of deal. Well, let's remember Barack Obama passing health care in 2010. I mean, that was a really challenging time for his base. I mean, a lot of people wanted health care reform, but they didn't want to 
quite that way. And of course, it ended up being overwhelmingly popular. I mean, for the most part. Once he left office. Once he left. Okay. Once he left office, it took it took, took some time to get there, but he was able to get through a reelect. Um, he was able to get through, you know, mm-hmm. through 2012 with with a somewhat controversial, but ultimately necessary, I think, healthcare plan passed. I think the way that Trump deals with the NRA is an illustration of what I believe is a weakness on his part. And we're both we both are touching on this. But the NRA was one of the biggest outside groups who spent money on his campaign in 2016. I think he see I think he's dependent upon them and I don't think he will ever cross them. And he will go out and do these we saw this before. He did the press conference with Democrats. He talked about how there's some ideas that we could work on, background checks and and then it just sort of evaporates. And I think it's largely due to his dependence and, you know, maybe even being a bit scared of the NRA and losing their support. Um, so I have no, you know, I, I look, you, I think you guys are both right that, yeah, Trump is the person who could sort of get this across the finish line. But I have no faith that he's going to do that. This is not a conversation he wants to have. He wants to have cult. He wants to have a culture war fight. That's right. And, and I think I think we're all in agreement here. And to me, I think to, going back to Adrian's original question, how, how do you affect change? How does Congress get anything done in this current government? And that is the only fact, the only person who could actually change minds would be the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And but what we're seeing right now on the gun issue is that there are Democrat Democratic candidates like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke and others who are saying not only here are my plans to actually have changes on gun laws, but here's what I'm going to do in my first 100 days yeah. if Congress doesn't go along with me yeah. because there are executive actions that I can Correct. actually take to be able to get things done. And so to me, the elections in 2020, both you know for president and for Congress, are going to come down to how much you know the, these gun issues and these measures are going to be a, a, on the ballot. Yeah, and I I made this point on Morning Joe this morning. I mean, if I was a after seeing that poll, if I was a 2020 Democrat running for the presidency, or if I was advising one of them, I would be focusing so much of my campaign right now on reforming gun laws and you know implementing background checks and you know red flag laws at the very minimum because that to me in that poll, I had just never seen a number that high on background checks, and well, I was I was again like I said pleasantly surprised. Um, knowing that a lot of Republicans, of course, were polled in this poll as well. One other stunning finding in our poll when it comes to guns, 55% of Americans said that they were very worried about another white nationalist attack using guns, going after people of color or difference And was origin. the question phrased with white nationalists or was that what it had, they, yeah. it had, it had, it had white nationalists. Yeah. 55% of all Americans said they were very worried. By contrast, 27% said they were very worried of a general terrorist attack. Hmm. So two to one. And we went back and looked at our NBC Wall Street Journal poll. And Adrian, to your question on you know how long our poll goes back, in 2002, so months after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the very same question, how worried are you about a terrorist attack? 30% said that they were very worried. So the I think what, what collectively and what's happened in Dayton and El Paso and Pittsburgh and across the country have really driven home the point. I think that people are expecting this even more than they expected a terrorist kind of attack after 9-11. And, and to me, that was really a jaw-dropping find. That's crazy. And you've never seen anything like that, I assume, no, in this poll no. since, since 9-11, or even comparably to 9-11. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about 
trade in the poll. Um, a lot of the headlines mm-hmm. that came out of your poll, of course, are like the overwhelming popularity of free trade compared to what it's been in the past. Do you want to touch a little bit on Yeah. And so to that? me, this was the, the headline that we popped yesterday, uh, Sunday on our poll. And that was when Chuck Todd and I and the other people who consume this poll, we were looking at all the numbers that are out there. It's like, what really stood out to us? And it was this question of sentiment for people who think that free trade is a good idea is at 64% the highest it's ever been in our poll. And we've been asking this question since 2015. And back in 2015, it was 51% think that free trade is a good idea or good, and 41% mm-hmm. said, it, said it was bad. Now the numbers are 64% good, 27%. And really, I think the sentiments on trade, at least when it, we look at this question and how it's asked, there is more of a free trade sentiment and our pollsters actually think a lot of it has to do with the president Mm -hmm. with the tariffs and so a lot of democrats you know who in 2015 2016 might have been skeptical of free trade they're part of the afl cio against tpp and all of a sudden tpp gives me ptsd (laughs) (laughs) and now all of a sudden that you know the president has his trade policy he's made every democrat and a lot of like democrat leaning independents free traders yeah it's, yeah. it's quite impressive. Yeah, I'm sure you guys remember the uh, the dance that we did a little bit um, with Hillary's campaign on on TPP. It was a necess- because of Bernie Sanders and, and the pressure he put um, put not just on us, but you know the, the way that he sort of pressured the Democratic Party in general on that issue. But it's just fascinating to see this and unlike evolved where it is. And so, to me, what, what stood out and what I was actually thinking about when I saw this number is that. The 2020 race for the Democratic nomination, I think, is going to be different than it was in 2015 or 2016 in mm-hmm. that there is more breathing room and more oxygen. If you ne- necessarily – you might not want to be all the way 100 percent on TPP, but basically saying, hey, I think that trade's good. We need to look out for the American worker. We're going to look out for environmental rights. But you really couldn't take those steps and have that kind of rhetoric in 2015 and 2016. No. And to me, what stands out is that, you know, you still have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who seem to represent that vanguard of TPP is bad. Free trade is usually pretty bad. And I do think that that gives room for the Joe Bidens and other, whether it was in that center or the center left, a little more of leeway than Hillary Clinton ever had in, in 2016. Yeah. Well, tough. I think Democrats definitely have to figure out a, um, you know, a sharp way to go after Trump's economic policies, particularly, you know, the the tariffs, uh, but other, um, particularly his tax bill net, or tax bill being, you know, a, a failure, uh, the deficit going up. I think that still seems to be a work in progress for the Democratic Party in terms of having a sharp economic critique of this president and laying out a, you know, a, a forward looking message of what the Democrats will do. Right. And again, you know, what the economy looks like a year from now. And, you know, last week uh, obviously sent jitters to a lot of people on, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a recession. As we know, sometimes there's ups and downs. And sure. next week you could end up getting numbers that look great. Uh, but the some of the smartest Democratic strategists I speak with think that they would probably want to put hundreds of million dollars behind an economic message because everything else is baked in, whether it's the race and immigration. We were talking about guns. Everybody's kind of made up their minds. But to be able to target and have the economic message that Democrats are starting to say is that this economy still isn't working for you. Right. And the president of the United States actually through his tax uh, bill and other things helped out some, some segments of the electorate and the population, but not everybody else. And to be able to pick those folks off who were swing voters 
or who might have voted for Trump in 2016 because they just wanted change, those change voters are still potentially there for Democrats on an economic message. And on that note, you know, I, and that's something that I've been – I think the Democratic Party, is, unfortunately, has sort of had a hard time on this issue because it's hard to – I think people have had a hard time messaging against the tax bill – during a good economy, if that makes sense. If you look at the overall numbers, the unemployment rate, you know, the stock market up until recently, et cetera. Um, but people are not in jobs they will. A lot of people are not working jobs they want to be in. I mean, I know from Arkansas, where I'm from, I know a couple of folks who are former engineers and were making $150,000 a year who are making now $25,000 a year at the checkout line at a grocery store or at Walmart or, you know, doing something that they don't, they don't feel as a job that is at their level. Um, that's probably not the best example, but I do think there are a lot of folks out there who are working jobs they, that they didn't sign up for, that they are doing just to provide for their family because they were laid off or, um, you know, other circumstances way, came into play and they, they're they just not thrilled with what they're doing. They're not making a living wage or they're not, you know, they're, they're not feeling like they can actually provide for their families. And I think that's where Democrats really have to focus on, that not everyone, to your point, is feeling the economy. Our common phrase in 2016 on Hillary's campaign was um, the economy is not working for everyone, just those at the top. I mean, that was sort of like a, a phrase that we used a lot, but it, but it's, but it was true. It, it, it boded well and, and it worked, but it is hard to, you know, or it presents a, ch a challenge to message, I think, when there is, when the economy is relatively decent. Um, you know, to try to draw that contrast. But I think Democrats are doing a better job of it now. My theory of uh, politics in the Trump era is that I think everybody's made up their minds, or most voters outside of maybe 3 to 4% on the president of the United yep. States, where the economy really comes in is going to be on the down, down the ballot issue. And mm -hmm. so, for example, if the economy's still below, the unemployment rate's below 4%, we're still status quo. Things are going well. Trump is saying, see, this is the greatest economy in the last 40, 50 years. To me, that helps somebody like Susan Collins out in Maine. It helps sure. Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Whereas I think that we're already kind of bracing for a presidential election that where most people have already made up their minds down the ballots where it's going to be. But all of a sudden, if the economy does go, if the economy has a next rough year and mm -hmm. people's worst fears are realized, then if I am Susan Collins or Tom Tillis, I'm really scared sure. because, uh, you know, those kind of swing voters can end up impacting what ends up happening in Maine and North Carolina. So the way that I'm almost looking at the economy is almost secondary to the president, where I think a lot of voters have separated the economic performance from the president. They're voting on culture. They're voting on mm -hmm. other issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, but 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 it will matter on you tell me what the unemployment rate is it, this time next year. And I'll tell you, Who's happier, the folks that you know over at the DSCC or the NRSC? You know, just <laughs> right. I think that's where it's going to matter. Yep. Uh, I want to spend just a few minutes on Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she's uh, she's giving a big speech mm -hmm. today at a Native American forum. Uh, she was one of the people that you you poll tested. She has been. Uh, I think it's uh, not contested here that she has been on the upswing. Uh, both in key early states and nationally. Just want to get your take on on her campaign. You've guys got um, a bunch of embeds out there. How many embeds do you have? Uh, a lot. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> As, uh, tw ten. Right. So you've got you know you've got people out in the field. I I'm just what what is your take on Elizabeth Warren right now? She has been the one candidate who has had a sustained rise over a four or five month period of time. 
a slow and steady rise, which I can't remember in any other presidential cycle I've covered since 2004. You know, they've, you know, you've had ups and downs, or someone leaps up like uh, Howard Dean did in 2004, or you know, even in 2008, it was Hillary Clinton and then Barack Obama making an approach right before the Iowa caucuses. But we've never had somebody who. March, April, May, June, July, where Elizabeth Warren keeps going up. Just incrementally gets and stronger. You, you can feel on the ground as well as like in the commentariat that, you know, that there's a lot of rah-rah for Elizabeth Warren. To me, the biggest question is going to be when some of the negative coverage and press starts, because over this last four or five month period, it has been almost all positive coverage, which mm-hmm. to me... The, the fire has been on the front runner, Joe Biden. I've always had a theory of, a, of presidential politics in that you t- I can get a, a test of the candidate's medal when the entire Death Star is aimed at them and firing all of the lasers. Uh, and Elizabeth Warren's in, isn't that situation yet, where every little gaffe, every little slip up matters when you're the front runner. But when you're in second or third place, no one kind of pays attention to. Yep. And I want to see what she's like when she's in that pole position if she gets there. And like that that brings up a good point. I mean, we have not seen, short of, you know, the debates and whatnot, we haven't seen a lot of mudslinging yet really between, like we haven't seen a lot of paid media put, you know, against candidates in the Democratic primary. Um, based on what you've seen in this poll, based on the fact that Trump's reelect is 40%, based on the fact that you just mentioned a while ago, which I think we all talk about that really this election is going to be decided by those three to four, maybe mm-hmm. as many as 5% of independent, you know, moderate swing voters, that like small core of the country that's kind of, you know, going to probably make up their mind the last, you know, handful of weeks in the campaign cycle. Do you anticipate that number to change once more money is spent, once Trump starts spending money on paid media to, you know, to, to dirty up some of the candidates? Like, do you think that that needle is going to move at all once real money starts to be spent? I do. I do think that I feel if, like it's going to have inevitably if I'm looking to, at all right? the Democratic candidates and Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, the longer you campaign, the usually the more unpopular you get in at least our society and our the way we consume news. Mm-hmm. And it seems that there has been a big change in our politics uh, over the last 10 years. In the last decade, I think we've gotten a lot coarser. We've gotten mm-hmm. a little meaner. Uh, I think social media has helped do <laughs> to that. Say, to say the least. And and I think our, our politics reflect that. So I wouldn't be surprised uh, that we the negative ads start happening, the people get in their corners. And mm-hmm. if you're an Elizabeth Warren supporter versus a Joe Biden supporter, you want to go to war with that person. You're not going to give them any type of uh, uh, of benefit of the doubt. So I do think that that's coming. What I was surprised at was the first two rounds of debates in that they were chippier than first presidential debates. I can remember, you know, Adrian, going back to 2016, mm-hmm. first couple of Democratic debates, you had Bernie Sanders saying, oh, enough with the damn emails. Everybody yeah. seemed, you know. Kumbaya. They, they, it, right. And even in the 2008 cycle, I mean, it wasn't like Barack Obama and John Edwards and Hillary Clinton were all swinging punches. They eventually right. came. They did. But it was in February and March of 2008, not February and right. March of 2007. So true. And so – I do think that things have gotten a little nastier and punchier early on, which to me kind of reflects that when it really comes down to crunch time, and that is before Iowa, and then once we get to a one-on-one or three-person race in the spring of 2020, it's going to be brass knuckles. I mean, it's going to be people punching things. And then that to me is the question on uh, after everybody's bloodied, what does everybody look like when they now have to go against President Trump? 
Right. 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 Oh. Yeah. I mean, I think. Look, I, I I'm not going to be surprised if you see negative ads in Iowa and New Hampshire. I'm I'm guessing it's going to be a lot more male early on. So that's discreet and targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think a lot of these folks still will have to introduce themselves. Um, and um, we had our first major candidate drop out of the race, Governor John Hickenlooper from Colorado, former mayor of uh, Denver. Uh, he dropped out. Um, what? Why didn't he catch on? He was actually a, a he, he was a guest on our show early on. Um, but why don't you think he caught on? I mean, he won in a purple state. He's a very you know he's a he's a He's a really nice guy, and I think he's got a long, you know, he's got a lot of accomplishments to point to. Why didn't he catch on? I believe that the size of the field has made it really hard for others to catch on. That there's almost like you walk into a buffet, and instead of having like four or five options for food, there are suddenly 50 or 60 different options, and you have a paralysis of what do I going to eat? I mean, is it going to be the hamburger, the chicken fried steak, the fried chicken? A little bit of everything. And that's what the Democratic field feels right now is like you end up, you had 20 candidates, everybody from Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and John Hickenlooper, Eric Swalwell, who also dropped out. And uh, because of that, it's been very hard for people to go up in the polls it is interesting how stable the race has really been over yeah. the last three or four months. And again, don't put too much into horse race polls right now. They're yeah. going to get a whole lot more serious once we get to the fall and the build up to the Iowa and New Hampshire. But to me, the numbers really haven't changed much. If there's been any kind of change, it's been that Elizabeth Warren's gone up, Bernie Sanders has gone down. And then when you end up seeing that after Joe Biden's entry into the race, that uh, you end up having some numbers for Beto O'Rourke that went down as Pete Buttigieg uh, rose into the mm-hmm. polls. But outside of that, the changes have been very minor and haven't allowed somebody like if you are a Steve Bullock to, you know, I'm going to be at eight or 9% in the polls. And this to me, as I've been crunching the numbers, looking at who's going to end up qualifying for this third round of debates, when you end up assuming that Joe Biden has 30% or 35% of the Democratic electorate, 20% for Elizabeth Warren, 15% for Bernie Sanders, Another five for Pete Buttigieg, two percent for Cory Booker, two percent for uh, Beto O'Rourke. You're only dealing with sixteen percent left, and if you have sixteen, if you have sixteen candidates who are all trying to fight over sixteen percent, it's hard for people to get even two percent. Yeah, and it, Kamala it, is going to have about. And nine so, or 10, yeah. to me, that's mm-hmm. the, the Hickenlooper was in that. I am trying to fight over sixteen percent of the electorate, and no one kind of giving him another look. I also believe, and I've heard this from operatives who have been watching the Democratic race, that it is harder for people who aren't representing historic first yeah. to be able to run in this field. And so I think someone who might be a white male, yep. two-term governor, successful governor, we've had that before. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, And so I think that there still is a desire in the Democratic Party on looking for historical first. And if you also don't have that kind of historical first nature – it's a little bit harder for you. You know, it's so interesting you say that because it used to be sort of the gold standard of a candidate for president was a governor, a former governor, a current governor, because you you know likely didn't have a voting record unless you were in the in Congress before um, or in the state legislature. But even then, that voting record didn't hold the same weight that you did in Congress, um, and and so you didn't have as much oppo. But you also had this sort of you know 
larger than life ability to, you know, to just govern. A lot of people at that, that time or in different times than we are in now, obviously, thought that, you know, being a governor was a neck, was a stepping stone to becoming president because you've been used to governing um, a large amount of people. But it's interesting how that's, you know, we've had several, gov- or we have several governors in this race. We've got Jay Inslee still in. We've got, um, who am I blanking on? Bullock. Bullock, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and of course, Hayden Luber just dropped out. But I think it's interesting how that's kind of evolved. Well, and also the experience and hey, I can get things done in the Trump era has not been necessarily the rallying cry. A lot of it's been on who's going to motivate me more to go mm-hmm. vote. And that's one, you know, one thing that's benefiting Elizabeth Warren. Uh, uh, it's actually an argument I've actually found interesting. You don't hear much from even Joe Biden, who's like, you know, the former two term vice president is like, I know how to do the job. I was vice president for eight years, Yep. Uh, which is kind of less from, you know, Hillary Clinton always in, in 2016 was kind of talking about a lot of her experience. I'm ready on day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's almost like the experience thing nobody cares about anymore, even though to me, when it comes to credentials, when people are actually like, who can do the job? Uh, I do think that that part of the debate is being ignored, which is mind-boggling. Yeah. It yeah. really is. No, uh, it, Elrod brings up a good point. I mean, it's been, been 28 years since the Democrats nominated a governor for – to be their nominee. Is that right? Bill, Bill Clinton, years. 92. Wow. You're um, making me feel very old, by the way, Doug. <laughs> um, any sense on who, who should we keep an eye on in terms of the candidates who might be likely to to call it quits? Is there any, are there a couple ones that we should be eyeing right I think now? everyone should eye on people who don't make that next debate stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even though we've seen people like Seth Moulton who kept their presidential candidacies going, once you haven't made that debate stage, mm-hmm. right. it's, it's really hard. Um, and so I think everyone who doesn't make it is absolutely fair game on who uh, who who uh, is the next to leave. To me, outside of like who's next to leave, like who's the next to catch on? Yeah, and, and I think it all comes down to the stability of Joe Biden's campaign. Yeah. I feel like as long as he is in that 30 to 35% and he is seen as African-Americans are still behind him, he really is becoming the only candidate who is able to inter- hug that center, center left lane. Um, I think the race is going to look pretty much t- uh, come January like it is right now. To me, the one big opportunity, if you are a Pete Buttigieg or you are a Beto O'Rourke or you're an Amy Klobuchar or somebody else, is if Joe Biden's campaign falters. I mean, we have it in a crash and burn situation where all of a sudden – that 30 to 35% becomes free agents. Mm-hmm. And that can create in a kind of Game of Thrones little finger who benefits from chaos. <laughs> that kind of chaos <laughs> can open up for almost anybody. And it also could benefit uh, Bernie Sanders, who is, still has like the best, highest name ID mm-hmm. and who actually is getting, he and Joe Biden are competing for some of the same voters yeah. according to the polling. It could help Elizabeth Warren even more. And so, to me, looking at the Joe Biden strength is the most important question from here on out going into Iowa, because I think that that will either enable somebody to break through or it will suck out all the oxygen where we're really going to be headed to a two, three, four person race. And what do you think the crash and burn number is? Are we talking like Joe Biden going down to 20 percent? Are we talking about less than 20? Like, where is that line? I think it's less than 20. I mean, I think it mm-hmm. becomes clear that he isn't built for this campaign, isn't built for this moment. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll say uh, I thought his second debate performance was much better than the Me first. Me too. And people do forget sometimes that when you are the front runner, 
that a lot of you, your job is just to survive. Yeah. You don't have to have all the great one liners. I mean, you have seven, eight, nine people who are gunning for you on the stage. You just want to get done with those two hours and move on. I thought he did a pretty good job of that. Uh, I also do think that sometimes the debate performances are a little bit overrated yeah. when it yeah. comes to, yeah. uh, I, I, to me, outside of like, can he debate Trump? Does he have the fire in the belly? The biggest question is, can he really inspire everybody? And this is, to me, the central question for every Democratic candidate, given that the party is really such a big tent. Can you end up holding, can you end up being the avatar from everyone from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to, you know, red state Democrats and people who are going to, a lot of the House members who are up in, in 2020, the Abigail Spanbergers, can you bring all those people together where you find common cause and people are ready to go uh, to election with you? And to me, that that would be his biggest task. Can he end up being a bridge to the new generation of Democrats as well as help out the red state and the older generation? Fascinating stuff. That is the key question that I think all of these candidates are going to have to figure out and crack. And I don't think anyone has, um, but uh, I think you hit it, you know, you hit the nail on the head. The last person to do it was Barack Obama. Yeah. And, it, and it took a very talented politician at a time where the incumbent Republican president had a 28% job rating. Uh, right. And it, you had a recession, the great recession mm-hmm. that was taking place. So uh, it, it is not going to be easy, um, despite all these rough, uh, tough numbers for the president, we, as we discussed from our poll. It's fascinating. Anything else you want to throw in? About no, those are all good questions. Now Thank I got to go you. get back in that heat, right? <laughs> yeah, man. Back into the swamp. I will back call my cab swamp, right literally. now. Back in the swamp. Well, it's it, this is kind of is McAllen like this? McAllen, Texas, it's like this you? for five, six months yeah. out of the year. Yeah, so the the difference is like this only lasts for two or three months, and we're almost in football season. And so as yeah. soon as the first football game, the college football game starts. The air gets a little crisper. I know. Uh, Fall who's your college in the team? Air. University of Texas Longhorns. Okay. I know. I we we got an Arkansas we have, person. We have talked I know. A, the Southwest Conference back the old, in the olden days. Mm-hmm. Southwest Con, yeah, yeah. yeah Texas A and M. Arkansas was the only non-Texas school in the Southwest Conference for quite a long time. We got the we got a lot of hell for it. SMU. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of football to be played. But again. Once football starts getting played, the air gets a lot nicer. We're not going to be talking about swamps anymore. So I'm ready for it. All right, buddy. Thank you so much for coming on the Electable. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you. For my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell, and we'll catch you next time.